Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. So, hi everybody. Um, mostly like high ladies, right? Not, not a big gentleman's group? Um, we were just talking about that, huh? You were saying that you're going to start making people bring... BYO man. Right. All For future it. events That's right. I'm going to require. Um, but I want to welcome you to tonight's uh, program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Peggy Ornstein, and I am thrilled to be in conversation with Jessica Bennett. Uh, Jessica's a columnist at Time and a frequent contributor to the New York Times. And she's also curator of the, one of the curators, yeah? of the Lean In Collection, which is a photo initiative um, that is trying to change the depiction of women in stock photography. I hope that we'll get to that, because that sounds really interesting. Mm -hmm. And we're here tonight to talk about her new book, Feminist Fight Club. There it is. Um, Jessica, let's go. Should we get started? Yeah. Um, So uh, the subtitle of this is A Survival Manual for a Sexist Workplace. you know, one thing that kind of interested me was that you are asserting a sexist workplace. You're not saying for a workplace that might be sexist yes. or for some of them that might be sexist. Tell me about that choice. Yeah, um, that line got me uninvited from one of my speaking gigs really? <laughs> um, from a big corporation that I won't name uh, because of that exact reason. It was asserting that we are all beginning at baseline sexist. But I believe that to be true, even if we are not overt sexists, unconscious bias is everywhere and Mm -hmm. we all exhibit it, women and men. And if you look at the statistics and you look at the data, there's really no arguing with that. So I wanted to be overt about it in the way that I talked about it and, you know, take that as a starting point and move forward from there. Mm -hmm. And what's the first rule of Feminist Fight Club? The first rule of the Feminist Fight Club is you must talk about the Feminist Fight Club. And that's what's also, the second rule That's the second feminist. rule also. <laughs> you must talk about the Feminist Fight Club. You know, I know that you're, you're referencing Fight Club, um, but I also was thinking about um, when I was uh, in my 20s and living in New York, and it was a really kind of... Um, bad time for a feminist. We had just been told that if we didn't get married before we were 40, we had as much chance of getting married as like being dying in a plane crash. The famous Newsweek story where I began my career. And the rules had just come out. Mm Um, so this seemed like it was really interesting. Do you guys remember the rules? The rules was told you that told women it was the rules to catching a man basically, and it was telling you the that you should become a creature like no other, and you know don't call him back, and all of these things. Um, so I loved having this new set of rules that was had a completely different 
Did you think about the rules at all? Or were you just thinking about Fight Club? So the I think that I was a little bit after the rules um, in terms of being of the age that would pay attention to that. But I remember my book agent actually telling me about the rules because it had been so wildly successful. And, and he was using it as a reference point when we were talking about writing book proposals. And so I went out and I got it. And I was so pissed that I'd spent my money on that book because it was so bad. Um, so I didn't really think of the rules, but I like that point, turning the rules on its head. I mean... You know, what I've tried to do throughout the book is take a very masculine style approach and feminize it and make it humorous. So I read The Art of War. I read <laughs> Fight Club. I read all of these sort of manuals for, you know, the manuals. zombies. Yeah, manuals. manuals or manuals in this case. Um, the zombie survival guide. Uh -huh. And then eventually this led me to like the hipster handbook and all of these silly ones. But it felt like while... There was a lot of talk and advice and books out about the issues of gender in the workplace. And there were a lot of these manuals. None of them really combined the two. And I felt like there was a space to do that. You also talked about Sisterhood is Powerful sitting on your desk the whole time. That, mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty Yeah, amazing. so um, this is a book that was put out in 1970, written by Robin Morgan. Um, and it was an anthology. It was essays about the women's movement of that time. and. I mean, the most interesting part of researching this book was digging back through archives and looking at old manifestos, again, manifestos, um, from the 1970s. And, and I guess, if anything, that's what I was thinking about with the rules, because mm -hmm. these manifestos had clear, distinct rules of what they stood for and goals and what their different organizations were devoted to. And in a sense, they were fight clubs of a different yeah. generation. And so this book, Sisterhood is Powerful, I, I was reading through it, and there were a few things that really inspired me throughout this writing, one of which was, she says at the very beginning, this book is an action. Mm -hmm. And it's not just something to read, it's something to take action on. And so I say in my intro introduction, this book too is an action. Um, and then she has a section in there called verbal karate. Mm. And it's just a list of statistics to prove that sexism exists. And to me, that was so, that was such a huge thing because I think that sometimes the data and the statistics can be our most powerful weapon in mm -hmm. this fight and you can't argue with them. And so while I don't have a specific verbal karate section, there are 500 footnotes at the end of this mm -hmm. book if you care to look through them. and. That was because I wanted to root every single bit of advice with, in data. Doesn't that seem crazy that she had to prove that sexism was a thing? I guess it seems crazy to, I guess, you still have to prove it, it, But it right? doesn't even, reading through it, it doesn't even seem that outdated on some level. Yeah. I feel like we, we still have to. Uh-huh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so tell me about the role of Feminist Fight Club in your own life. Tell me about your Feminist Fight Club. Yeah, so, um, I am in this group, and we have always joked for the past 10 years since I, I joined it um, that we were like a feminist fight club because it was all women, and we would gather monthly, and we would talk about the challenges we were facing in our respective workplaces, but we wouldn't talk about the club outside of the club. So the old rule was you didn't talk about the fight club. And we would joke it was like a feminist fight club because of that. Wait, why didn't you talk about it outside of the club? Because at the time... I was working at Newsweek. I was a young reporter there. There were a lot of women working in different 
creative realms, filmmakers, some are working in television. And a lot of the women really did feel that if it got out that they were in a feminist group, and this was not that long ago, that they would be penalized in their offices. A lot of them were television writers. And so we didn't talk about the group outside of the group. And over time, as we've supported each other and as things have evolved, and we've all gone through ups and downs, we've become more comfortable talking about the club. And so that was the inspiration for the book, the time had come to talk about the club and share some of what we had picked up along the way, but then of course also incorporating a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And did the other members contribute to the book? Yes, everyone read many chapters and offered jokes and advice and helped me make up a lot of puns mm -hmm. <laughs> and contributed to that video. The puns are excellent. <laughs> did, did it feel, I mean, I, I know you wouldn't have participated in this, nor would I have, but it, it almost sounds like those the consciousness raising Yeah, groups. it was. That's what it, I mean, it was a consciousness raising group that we didn't know to call as such, but it, uh -huh. it was. And the idea of 1970s consciousness raising groups where you, your consciousness was raised when you realized that your personal experience was actually political and it was actually much broader and it was collective. That was my exact experience. We all began meeting, we were all struggling in our respective fields, but we weren't necessarily identifying the problem as sexism. Mm -hmm. We just felt that we weren't getting ahead and it was really annoying and we were frustrated. But over time, hearing each other's stories and hearing the same stories repeated and some of the same problems, you know, our ideas being attributed to other people, um, being interrupted when we spoke, um, not being afraid to speak up in meetings. And we were all in creative fields, these very subjective <laughs> fields where it's like, maybe my idea just sucked. Like maybe I just was not good enough. Maybe that's why I didn't get published. It really took us repeating the same things over and over again to each other for us to kind of simultaneously come to what second wave feminists would call the click moment, right. where we were like, oh, shit, this is actually a collective problem. And this is a systemic problem, and it's not just us. You know, I was, I was really struck early on in the book by your statement, and this relates to what you're saying, about feeling alone in those feelings and feeling isolated, because there was sort of me, part of me was wondering, like, what did women a little older than you, like my age, not communicate to you that you felt that way? Because everything that you said in that book, you know, was so, I mean, my first job in, um, when I was out of college was at Esquire. Mm -hmm. And when I was interviewed, I've never told this story publicly, but I will now with naming the magazine, I was told in my interview, I was 21 years old, um, that there was a guy there that I would be working for who was known to rub his erection occasionally against young female assistants, and could I handle that? Could I handle that? And I said, yes, because I wanted that job. Right. You know, and, and interrupting, having my ideas taken from, all that kind of stuff was so familiar. And I think, what, where was the breakdown that, that that just kept going with nobody stopping and going, hey, right. hey, hey, we gotta stop this now. Right. I mean, I know you can't really answer that. I mean, I, well, <laughs> maybe it's we got wrapped up. It's just that whole thing up. that doesn't hit you until you're in the work world, right, too, exactly. right? Right, exactly, and that's the thing, and that's what all the statistics show, is that women are excelling, and they're graduating from college in higher numbers, and they're getting more PhDs, and I grew up in this very 
liberal progressive environment in Seattle with feminist parents who were always telling me I could achieve and accomplish whatever I put my mind to. And it was so much so that I didn't talk about feminism. I didn't use that word. It was almost just implied. Of course we were all right. feminists. And so it took me getting to the workplace to realize that, oh, maybe actually I did need feminism. This was a thing that was still relevant to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it strikes me too, there's that, you talk about, um, Death, the death by a thousand cuts quality of it, to the the subtle sexism that makes you go is did they did he did they right right. I was talking to Gail Collins, the the New York Times mm-hmm. writer, once about her book, which is about the women's movement. Right. This was a few years back, and and we were comparing you know the difference in our generations, and she says something to the effect of sexism from my generation was worse in a lot of ways. It was probably like what you experienced in that first job interview, but at least you knew it when you saw it. Like it was so clear, it was so overt. Help wanted ads are segregated by gender. You're being told that this guy's gonna rub a erection on you. At Newsweek, where I began my career, the women were told that they were not allowed to be writers. Like you could come on board, you could be reporters, you could research, but at the end of the day, you were going to hand your notes over to a man and he was going to get the byline. And I think for my generation, it's not so overt. It is much more subtle. It's much more insidious. And, you know, to the contrary, we're told, of course we can be writers. You can do anything a man can. So then when you're not getting ahead at the same pace, you turn inward and you question whether it's you. It's yeah, we I think that we tell girls when they're young that you can, you know, honey, you can be anything. And then they get older and we say, you can't have it all, you know, and and there's this sort of contradiction between what we tell little girls and and, and we don't tell and and by telling them that we're not preparing them for the real structural impediments that they're going to face and have to fight against it's really um a a kind of um uh, a message that's ultimately going to undermine them in a lot of ways and it's hard to know what do you do because you don't want to be so you know it's like i wish that i had known that this was a problem Mm -hmm. but you also don't want to be discouraging to young women who already have so many more forces coming at them from all angles. Right, and, I, and I, I do feel that more young women are more aware maybe because of the issues that are on campus now with um, sexual assault mm-hmm. and sexuality, which is stuff that I've been writing about, that that's mm-hmm. kind of radicalized them a little more maybe. And the internet maybe, mm-hmm. you know, the discussions of these issues happen every day. Um, I know that the young women that helped me research the book and the young women that I interviewed, they were so much, they are so much more educated and smart on these issues than I was at their mm-hmm. age. And they think about them from a multi-layered perspective and they they don't just talk about feminism, they talk about intersectionality. And yeah. I just have been so impressed by the generation younger than I am. Yeah, it's exciting, mm-hmm. it really is. So you mentioned Newsweek earlier, um, and, and I know you worked at Newsweek. Newsweek mm-hmm. seems to have, be responsible for a lot of feminist conversion. Not in a good way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I began my career. This was my first job out of college. I was an intern. And I felt so lucky to have a magazine job at a time when journalism was imploding. And we would still get like town car rides home and those fancy dinners on the night before the close and a lot of wine. And that, of course, no longer exists. But... I started to face a lot of this stuff and I didn't even notice it for a long time. I, but I wasn't speaking up. I was afraid to pitch ideas. I would sort of cower in the corner of the room in all of these rooms with a lot of white men. And 
eventually I started talking to my female colleagues and I realized that they were feeling the same thing. Um, we would pitch a story idea and it would appear in the magazine under a man's byline. Um, we'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. I eventually found out that a a colleague who was a friend of mine and we were at the same level was making $10,000 more than I was. And he told me. And he then encouraged me to ask for more. Like, it wasn't him. It was a systemic issue. And... Eventually, this researcher in the library dropped this book off on my desk one day um, that was In Our Time by the feminist writer Susan Brown Miller mm-hmm. from the 1970s. And it has this chapter about the women of Newsweek who, in the year 1970, filed a gender discrimination lawsuit against Newsweek. And this was the first lawsuit of its kind. And it truly paved the way for female journalists because at the time they were told they couldn't write. And it had this domino effect. After they filed suit, the New York Times filed suit, and Time Magazine did, and Sports Illustrated, and there was a sit-in at the Ladies' Home Journal. And so us being journalists, we, we read this and we were just so shocked and amazed that we had never heard this story. Like the history had not been passed down. And we started going around the office and asking anyone who would listen if they knew the story of these women. And of course this was, this story may sound familiar now because it's about to be the subject of an Amazon series called The Good Girls Revolt. And, but at the time it was ungoogleable. <laughs> so we were like, we were like, what, what, what is this thing? Like, we have to actually walk to the library? Um, and we, so we did. We went to the New York Public Library and we dug up the microfiche <laughs> and all the old articles about this suit. And, and in our journalist brains, we were like, the 40th anniversary of this lawsuit is coming up. This would make an amazing story. We should look at what has changed. And so we tracked down those women from the original suit. And at the time, 
this was in 2009. It was right after the David Letterman scandal had erupted. He had been caught sleeping with his assistant. And there was a gender discrimination lawsuit at the New York Post. And Maria Shriver had put out this big report on the state of gender equality. And this was sort of a pre-lean-in world. Like, people were not talking about these issues with such frequency. And so we tracked down those women, and we reported their story, and we looked at what had changed. And it was so funny because they told us how they used to gather in the ladies' room to basically plan this revolt and this uh -huh. uprising. And that's what we were doing. We were, in 2010, in the women's bathroom of Newsweek, planning this revolt and planning to write this story and not telling our editors about it. And so, for me, it was a combination of that and learning the story of these women from 40 years prior whose, whose anecdotes I still so connected with. I felt a lot of what they described and the finding of these other women who would eventually become part of the Fight Club that made me really realize that this was an issue I cared about, this was a larger systemic thing, and sort of was a turning point for me in terms of what I would ultimately write about mm -hmm. and focus on. You know, I know that Nora Ephron had been at Newsweek. Um, I don't know if she was, was she part of that suit? She left, she left before, before it. They yeah. all, the women all talked about how she was one of the few people that was like, this, I'm out of here. Yeah. And so she That's went right. on to try it on her own and then went, ended up at Esquire. Esquire. Mm -hmm. um, so she was not part of it, but she was one of the mail cart pushers, right. one of the researchers in those days. I've just been reading, um, uh, I saw the doc documentary on her, and mm -hmm. then that got me curious, and I went back and read uh, Crazy Salad and Scribble mm -hmm. Scribble. And what's really fascinating about reading those is, you know how they say journalism is the first rough draft of history? Mm -hmm. So she's writing about the changes in the women's movement, the changes in women's lives as they're happening, right. So, but she doesn't know yet what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So she's she's in it, you know? So there was a, a point where she's writing about the great tennis match. And you remember that the great tennis match was Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King, right? That was like the big- The battle of the sexes. The battle of the sexes. Except it's not Billie Jean King that she's writing about. It's this other woman. Mm. And like reading this and going, who is this person? Oh. Because she doesn't know that that's not the one. Because she's reporting oh. it at the time, you know. So oh, interesting. It, has really, it, it didn't work. That one didn't happen. Oh wow! And it's just really, it's it's amazing to go back and read that stuff when it's sort of in process like right, that. Right. Right. Um, and and really also to value the the contribution of yeah. um, female journalists in in creating this. Yeah. So I don't know. That's just not a, a side note, but. Um, but you, so you have worked in both new media. You worked at Tumblr, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, what do we call it now? Legacy media, old media, yeah. writing, yeah. print. Um, I, is, I basically went to Tumblr and then was like, I'm going to go back to legacy media. I like yeah. hate it. I was like, I'm done with legacy media. I went to Tumblr to launch this new media thing. And You're then in they, the Bay Area. I know, I know. And then they fired it. Well, because no, it's new right. media doesn't really care about content that much. So Tumblr fired me um, and my team. They let us off and then I was like, oh, I'll just go back to legacy media, I guess. Is the, is, is the workplace sexism different in new media, do you think? You know, I experienced a lot of the same stuff at Newsweek as I did at Tumblr. Um, there are certain aspects of it, like the stuff that you see on Silicon Valley, like that mm -hmm. was not completely inaccurate. 
in my office. Like there was a ping pong table next to my desk and I would get hit in the head with ping pong balls occasionally while I was trying to like be a professional at work. And that was annoying. And there were, and that was not gender based necessarily though. I don't think any women were playing the ping pong um, on the ping pong table, but it was a lot of the subtleties. The, the guy in the video who happens to be my boyfriend, the stenographer who's talking about hashtag progress, it was that. It was like a bunch of white guys being like, and we care about diversity. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think that legacy media had its own really entrenched institutionalized problems, but young people wanted to change it. And I think that in, at Tumblr, people also really wanted to change it, and they didn't have such entrenched problems, but there were no HR departments, there was no grown-up there to help them mm -hmm. do it. And I think with a lot of this stuff, it's important to remember that these things are not always malicious. Like, a lot yeah. of this is really unconscious behavior, and, you know, if you're getting interrupted over and over again, most likely that person is not maliciously trying to interrupt you, but there's a thing called male privilege, and men do interrupt more. Women are interrupted at twice the rate that men are, and that is a result of years and years of history telling women that their voices are not important and men's that there are, they are. And so I think that with some of these things and what I try to get at in the book is calling out this behavior can be effective because the people who are exhibiting it are A, not always men, and B, probably want to correct it. Like most of the people in this room seem relatively young. I'm a millennial, I'm like the very end hair of it and I'm like clinging to that. Um, but people of my generation, what all of the research shows is that we really do want gender equality and we want egalitarian relationships and we want all of these things. But sometimes acting on that is harder than saying it mm -hmm. and we need a little help along the way. I liked in the, um, and I know it's in the book too, the verbal chicken. Mm -hmm. um, the idea was that if you just keep talking, that, that uh, uh, volume is important. Yeah, I mean, that won't always work, but that's, yeah. one, that's one tactic. Another tactic is um, to have someone be your kind of wing woman or wing man to interrupt the interrupter so that you don't have to be the bad guy or bad woman being like, hey, can you just let me finish? So that, you know, then you're viewed as like naggy and sensitive mm -hmm. and like over emotional. But if someone else does it, then they're like the great guy or woman who is, who is letting you speak and you get to get your word in and they look like a nice person and the other person shuts up. So like none of these things are rocket science, but mm -hmm. I do think that there are some really simple things that people can do to deal with these things in the moment. I gotta ask you how this relates to the election. Yeah. <laughs> And well, that's what I, I was just trying to write an op-ed before I came here and struggling. Oh, practice. Here, you can yeah. tell us. Um, <clears throat> so I feel like people will be using this election as a case study in, in your, like gender researchers will be using this as a case study for years to come. Donald Trump is basically every single character in, in my book. <laughs> he is. <laughs> He's the man. He's a menstruator. Yeah, he's a he's absolutely a menstruator. He's a lactahater. He thinks that ha a woman having children is an inconvenience. Um, he's a imitator. He'll just imitate what another person says louder. Um, he's definitely an interrupter. Um, he's probably a bro appropriator, which is the bro who appropriates your idea. Um, and like, he's just a. An um, <laughs> you don't have a clever word for that one, huh? I don't, I don't, unfortunately. I'm limited in my puns. But, um, so there's that. And then 
Hillary Clinton runs into every single gender bias and stereotype landmine that exists. Like if you imagine her, I sort of like think of her on this track and it's like, okay, like I'm going along this way. Oh, like wait, I shed a tear, so now I'm weak. Oh, well like I just got sick for a second, like now I'm, I'm incapable. Oh, but I didn't smile right? Okay, so now I'm cold. Like I'm cold and I'm unrelatable and people don't like me. Well, I'm untrustworthy, despite the fact that a Pulitzer Prize winning fact checking website has said that I actually lie the least of all the candidates, I am untrustworthy. And uh, I'm unqualified for the job even though I'm actually the most qualified. And women have to be twice as qualified as men to be seen on the same level. And if you're a woman of color, it's three times as likely as, as qualified, four times as qualified. And so, I think people have very real problems with her, very valid ones, but so much of this is all wrapped up in gender bias mm -hmm. to me. Like, from, you know, the tone of her voice, it's too shrill. Well, shrill is a word we use twice as commonly to refer to women than we do to refer to I, men. I've never heard a man called shrill. Nope. Uh, twice as often seems like way low is yeah, what well, I'm saying. Yeah, well, that's like what the linguists say. Have you ever heard say. a man called I'm sure shrill? <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's so interesting and I talk a lot in the book about this subtle sexism, and, but what she's facing is like, it's overt, it's subtle, it's, mm -hmm. it's, every, it's unconscious. I think that on behalf of the masses, it's unconscious in a lot of ways. Um, and in some cases, it's conscious. Like, it's every, <laughs> every possible layer you could think of. Yeah, and do you think, if she wins, I hope, that, that there will be... Um, a shift, or do you think that's going to carry through the whole? Pre I mean, or is it? So, I hope so. I mean, I think that for me, I do think it's really important to see a woman on the national stage. Like, I just, I just do that whole debate about voting with your vagina and how you couldn't, you know, you, it was taboo to say that you were voting for Hillary Clinton because she was a woman. It is really important to me that she's a woman, and and I feel okay saying that. Um, but what the research shows is also that women's mistakes are scrutinized longer, remembered more, and if you are the first woman to do something, then it is almost as if any mistake you make is on behalf of your entire gender. Mm -hmm. And this goes for race as well. The first black president, you know, are his mistakes representative of his race? And so there's so much pressure um, that I don't, I don't know how she'll. Yeah, no, you know what I really want to see is the third woman president. Right. That's when I'll be like sort of right. happy. I don't want the first woman president is that's going to be tough. But I mean, the first woman president like sounds third, miserable fifth, to be, eighth, by the, the way. Tenth. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, so let's talk. Let's let's move to the book. Tell, tell me. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you could tell from the video that this book is really funny and irreverent and fun, and it's got all these wonderful little graphics, and it's funny, and, she, and Jessica's made up all these clever puns. And um, why write it this way? Infographics. Yeah, I mean, a couple of reasons. I, I kind of think in digital, and so as I was putting this together, I felt like I wanted to make it really digestible and easy to use and like a manual that you could literally like sit in the stall of your bathroom while you're like practicing what you're gonna say when you go in to negotiate your race in your 
company and like flip to the flow chart and be and like practice the language um so i liked that idea i wanted it when i first pitched it i was like yeah and it can be small and you can shove it in your backpack or your purse and it ended up getting too large but still um we'll be back with more here on friends on fridays with john zipper of commonwealth club right after this i'm heclina i've been doing drag here in san francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. So that, um, but I also think that humor is really important for this issue. I think that humor opens up subjects that we don't like to talk about, and it makes it okay for them to be talked about. And I think that particularly on this topic of feminism, you know, for so, like, the old stereotype, feminists aren't funny, feminists have no sense of humor, we're angry. And I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, the we're women... are funny. Yeah, exactly. And so... I've also seen the humor in this book open up the conversation to people who would never normally engage. I was at a barbecue, a family barbecue, with a bunch of middle-aged white men, Trump supporters, and I had an early copy of the book in my bag, and one of them saw it and I took it out and was looking at it, and I was like, oh, God, here we go. Um, and there's an asterisk on the front, and it says this book is 21% more expensive for men. Yeah. <laughs> That's to highlight the wage gap. It's not really. That would be illegal. I want men to buy this book. I'll even give you a 21% discount um, if you will buy this book. Um, no, not really. Uh, anyway, what am I saying? Um, so he looked at it, and he sort of was like, looked at me, and then looked back, and then like looked at the other guy, and, lo and like you could see the wheels turning, and then he laughed. And he started flipping through it and he saw the pictures and he, he was laughing more and he was like, oh yeah, this thing, like I know about that. Oh, you call women bossy, like, oh yeah, ha ha. And then he passed it on the table to all these other guys. 
And by the end, they were like, this is great. Do you want to come to our local bookstore in oh, Huntington, Long Island, or wherever uh -huh. it was, and how can we help you? And that would not have happened were it not for that line, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. So I do think humor is really important. I also think that these issues can be pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like, if you can also laugh about it maybe and have a little fun, like fighting the patriarchy doesn't have to be miserable, it can right. be fun. And I took a lot of inspiration from the, the feminist fight clubs of yore, these women's groups that I learned about through the research, who all had these really colorful actions and they would mm -hmm. go out and they would do these protests and they had a ball. And I think that we can do that too while, you know, like raising a fist. Right, I'm still thinking it's illegal to charge men 21% more for a book, but it's legal to pay women 21% right. less well, for what they do. Right. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I really have felt that there is a new, the newest wave of feminism is a funny wave, whether you're talking about Catelyn Moran, whether you're mm -hmm. talking about Amy Schumer, whether you're talking about you, you know, I think that it's, it has become the way in, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's great. I also have some mixed feelings about it. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that um, the anger from an earlier generation is seen as unacceptable, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. I, I feel like anger should be acceptable, Yeah. Um, along with humor. Yeah. I mean, I'm also angry, yeah. for, no, I for mean, the I, record. I get um, it. <laughs> uh, I sort of think that sometimes anger and humor can go yeah. hand in hand. Like, my group is, my real life feminist fight club is, it, we're all pretty angry, but we laugh about it mm -hmm. a lot, and we, and we try to filter some of that anger into like humorous actions. So, I don't know, I, I agree with you. I think that it needs to be more acceptable for, for women to be angry, um, because it's not. And, you know, down to like, if we have a frown, we're accused of having resting face mm -hmm. and being told we need to smile that was a, I, I don't know if i mentioned that on the hillary front yeah, be, yeah hillary being told she needs to smile um so i think that yeah i think that anger can be good anger can be a very motivating emotion as my therapist tells me <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he or she should know or they um so the examples in the video from the book were uh from the um knowing the enemy mm -hmm. section. Um, and, and I want you to talk about some of the other sections, like mm -hmm. know thyself. Give yeah. me some examples from know thyself. Yeah, so um, this is a tricky section for me because know thyself is about female self-sabotage. And I do believe that we self-sabotage on a lot of levels, we as women. And there is a lot of undermining going on. But I also believe that that is learned behavior that is the result of a patriarchal structure. And so I don't like the idea of putting the onus on women to change their behavior. And I don't like telling women that they need to correct all of these things. But at the same time, there are some statistically common things that happen. The office mom, for example, this is the person that takes on all of the administrative tasks, takes on the handling of the office party, brings the cupcakes, and women are more likely to volunteer for these tasks. They are also more likely to be asked to do these tasks. So, you know, one thing you can do is not volunteer. Like, that's a very simple way to deal with that thing. So the office mom. Um, there's a term called, that I call boast in the book. Um, so there's, it's hard for women to brag. So I have a, a character called the humble bragger. And this is the person who wants to openly be proud of something, but 
in an effort to not come off as braggy, masks it in this faux humility. This is like when you see hashtag blessed, and mm -hmm. it's like, just, you know, like, okay, good, everyone get that's what I'm talking about. So it's like, hash, no, you're not, there was not divine intervention in your promotion. Like, actually, you probably worked really hard, and it's okay to be proud of that. But as women, when we brag, we are not liked. We are disliked, and we are seen as cocky or just too braggy. So how do you overcome that? Well, one way is to have somebody else, your boast brag on your behalf and so go. she boasts for you you boast for her she looks really awesome because she's like selfless and promoting her friend and you look great because you get the credit and nobody gets penalized so I like that one because it can also play like you can have a boast almost any scenario and your boast doesn't have to be a woman and I know that that is a controversial word but I'm using it in the positive sense here uh-huh <laughs> All right. That's yeah, that's great. What about booby traps? That's another section. Yeah, so the booby traps are are more like the landmines that one must face. Being perceived as bossy or pushy when you make a demand or being viewed as the angry black woman when you express an opinion and you are a woman of color. Um, things these are a lot of the things that I talk about when I reference Hillary Clinton, because it's not that she's falling into these character tropes, it's more that there are these things out in the ether, these stereotypes that we all have that we place upon her. You know, a woman who asks twice is a nag. Um, a woman who expresses any kind of emotion is hysterical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, research shows that if a woman expresses anything clo remotely close to anger in the workplace. She's viewed as overly emotional, hysterical, like on her period. You can't do like, well, what is this woman thinking? You know, get her home. Um, when a man expresses the exact same emotion or anger, it's viewed as passion. Right. And so essentially booby traps are these double standards that we have. A woman makes a demand and she's bossy. A man makes a demand and he's a leader. Um, and they're everywhere. So how do you navigate those? Give me an example of what you so, suggest for some of these. <laughs> right, so I mean with some of these things, and this section in particular, a lot of I think the hacks for it is actually talking about the behavior, talking about the fact that these biases exist so that we can become aware of it. So that the next time you call a woman ambitious in a bad way, you ask yourself, would you call a man that same word? Um, or things like, you know, try, you can try to frame what you're saying in a different way so that it isn't perceived as anger. You can attribute it back to the company bottom line. You know, I'm not emotional right now. I'm angry because you jeopardize XYZ project that like relates it back to the business. It's not about like your personal issue that you mm -hmm. have. And so there's some tricks that you can use to try to overcome these things. But I think a lot of it also has to do with educating on the fact that the bias exists. And then it's not just men that have this bias, it's women too. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I have caught myself doing this. Like two people walk into a room, one is a man and one is a woman, and I will assume that the woman is in a lower position. Like, I've caught myself doing that before, and so some of it is just, like, checking your own behavior and knowing about these things so that you can check it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I have to say, I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, I, I feel like among my peers, the mm -hmm. way that a lot of us dealt with this stuff mm -hmm. was to just walk away from 
the workplace, not to become mm -hmm. parents or something, but to be like like me, to be an independent right. person where nobody can mess with me yeah. because I'm just in my own world. Yeah. Um, and and I wonder if if that's something that. I don't know. Sometimes it feels like a cop out, but and, or or just a you know just a strategy of just going forget it. Um, right. I don't know, but well, I, I mean, I think there's different approach. Did you do that immediately? Did you feel that your generation did that immediately, or they did it later? No, I mean, I feel like I worked for, I worked in the workplace for um, eight years, okay. and then just thought, yeah, screw this. I'd rather do be on my own. I mean, there is. Gloria Steinem has that quote about how women get more radicalized with age. Uh -huh. And I do wonder if, you know, you struggle and you try to work within the system for a number of years and then, yeah, you just say um, But I also think that, I mean, my view is that this isn't sort of an either-or thing. Like, we can f try to fight the system mm -hmm. and fight for things like equal pay and parental leave that is equal for men and women and raising the minimum wage. Like we can believe in these things and we can fight for them, but we can also work within the system and deal with some of these things in the moment. And maybe eventually we throw up our hands and say like, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to do my own thing. But having the tools in your back pocket to respond in that moment when you are kind of left speechless and don't know what to say. I found to be useful. Mm -hmm. And I found myself actually referring to the stuff in the book because it's hard to remember all of it at once. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, like I do all of this stuff. There's sections that I have to catch myself a lot. Absolutely. Do you think there's a um, feminist fight, fight club version that either you all would talk about in your group or that you think needs to be written for personal relationships? Probably. And you're not the first person to suggest that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe, probably. I mean, I always used to tell younger women that one thing, if you're going to marry a guy, marry a guy who can cook. Mm -hmm. That was like one of my big, if I was going to say that was like a feminist fight club, because if a guy can cook, like really cook, you know, like not just mess up the kitchen and, um, but, but cook and clean up, that, that means he can also shop and mm -hmm. he can, like there's a whole kind of series of things that goes yeah. with that. That will keep you when things fall out of balance because you have, if you have a child and everything goes pear-shaped, that will help. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. 
Hello, I'm Charles Sines, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. That's th- like a big feminist fight club. I mean, I think that's true. I don't and have I also a pun think for that, it. You need to oh, make it clever for me. Oh, you don't have a pun. No, I do not. <laughs> no, but that would be my... Well, I think that that's a good point. And I also think, I mean, you, you discuss some of this in your book, but there is this kind of dichotomy between women striving and being very powerful in their professional worlds and then it not exactly always translating mm-hmm. into their romantic lives. And I see that a lot, you know, and, and I can be guilty of that too. Like you can be completely vigilant about watching your gender <laughs> stereotypes in the workplace and then you get home and you fall into the same patterns. Right. Um, the woman does the laundry, you know, and all of the research supports that too. So yeah, I mean, maybe that's, if I can get through this, book <laughs> then maybe I'll help the next you with that one, one. <laughs> okay that would great be good. so the other one of the other things i really liked in the book was uh wwjd mm-hmm. what would josh do um because i realized <laughs> at one point you know when I, I was negotiating a contract for myself with the new york times and mm-hmm. i thought oh my gosh i'm asking my female peers what they make I need to go call right. the i need to call michael pollan yeah what is he making yeah that's yeah, what yeah, i want to yeah. make you know yeah yeah, so Josh was a real person. That's not his real name, but, you know, WWJD, it worked. Um, I used to share an wa- um, office wall with this person, and he became a very good friend. And we were both editors, and I would observe him in pitch meetings very frequently. And he had the, this confidence that I will probably never have in my life. But he would not only have the confidence, but he would have the confidence even when he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And so I would labor over my pitches and spend hours preparing for these meetings. And I'd go in, and then my delivery would be poor, and I'd be stumbling over my words. And they'd be like, "Okay, yeah, that's fine what you just said. And then Josh would talk, and he would deliver it with such confidence and poise, even though I knew he hadn't prepped and he would walk out with the assignment or whatever it was, and I wouldn't. And that's a thing. Cognitively, we mistake confidence for competence. And so I watched this happen again and again where people thought he was great. And a lot of times he was very good at his job, but he was also a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so over time, it, it became a joke among my colleagues, both male and female, WWJD, what would Josh do? And whenever we were in a bind or a tricky situation, we would ask ourselves that and be like, okay, if Josh would do this extreme thing and I'm here, then like, can we somehow get to some sort of middle ground? And so I still really do ask myself that constantly um, to try to push myself forward a little bit and try to think about what he would do. So the subtitle of that chapter is Carry Yourself with the Confidence of a Mediocre White Man. (laughs) And I don't... I don't mean to imply that we should literally be just mimicking men and acting like men, and that is a very controversial thing that has existed in you know, feminist theory for, for a long time. But I do think it can be helpful to ask yourself what a man might do in a situation. Right. And it's, 
it's been very helpful for me. Well, and you know, one place that that's been really um, apparent is, or, or, or a real issue, is in uh, opinion pieces in newspapers, as I'm right. sure you know, right? That um, that women are much less likely to, they're much less represented on, on opinion pages, mm -hmm. and partly because what we tend to do is go, oh gosh, do I really have something? Maybe I don't really have something to say. Do I really have something? And by the time you're like done dickering in your head about it, right. it's gone. The moment is gone. And that really has a, I mean, I definitely do a WWJD mm -hmm. with opinion pieces. Yeah. I think, you know what? I had an idea. Boom. You know, send that email right now to the editor and worry about that's whether smart. I can write it later. Yeah. And I think that's super important that for female smart. journalists. Yeah, well, the expert thing. Yeah. Men are more likely to view themselves as experts. And all, all of this stuff is, is backed in data. And so, of course, if you think of yourself as an expert, then you think you can comment on anything. Um, that's probably literally what I've been doing for the last week is like being like, I don't know how to write this op-ed. Right, so and that op-ed, you got to just like, yeah. you don't even think about it. Just yeah. write it and get it out yeah. there. I'll give you an editor. Um, <laughs> Great. Uh, so that actually brings me to my next question is how can we support one another as women? Well, I think that first of all, treating each other as allies, not as enemies. I think that there is this very real tendency to, you know, you look at things and there is this pie. And if women only have a sliver of the pie, then course we're going to compete against one another because there's only this tiny sliver. So you have to elbow the woman next to you to get it. And so my feeling is that a lot of the competitiveness that comes from women, and of course, I think that on some level, this is overhyped in the media, the you know, queen bee syndrome, mean girls, all of that. But there is some truth to it. And I, my feeling is that if we could level things, then competition would still exist. You know, it would still be capitalism and a workplace. Competitiveness is not necessarily a bad thing, but women wouldn't feel the need to compete against one another. And so, for me, having this group of women who supported me has helped me to kind of check my own behavior in instances where I immediately felt competitive in a situation or where I felt like a female boss what, you know, didn't look out for me or all of these things that a, a lot of times were rooted in my own stereotypes, not mm -hmm. actual truth. And so I think that, you know, we always say like we fight patriarchy, not each other. And I think that for women, that can be very powerful. I also think that men are so important to this. And, you know, bringing it back to the beginning of the conversation, like men are some of our strongest allies and we need to get them on board and be part of this conversation. And I think that it can be intimidating sometimes, but most men really do want to do the right thing. And the more that we can engage them in this conversation, the better. Um, and at the end of the day, like equality is not just good for women, it's good for men, it's good for businesses, it's good for, US GDP, like it, it is good on all of these different levels. It makes more diverse teams. It makes firm, more collaborative teams. Like I could go on and on. That's the verbal karate again, right, right. like hit people with the stats. You know, I, I, I really like that. And I think that it's really the, the intergenerational thing is really important too. Mm -hmm. And for me, I know doing something like this is something that's important to me to, to, to bridge. I mean, not that we're that far apart, but to, you yeah. know, to bridge some of that. Yeah. Um, and I and I think that that's another piece is yeah. the, is the intergenerational piece how women who are maybe 10 20 years older um, than the millennial generation can um, reach across and how, how we can learn from yeah them I mean them. from both sides I think that I often don't know like you hear the thing about how I think I hear a lot of younger women worry that older women feel like they haven't gone through the same struggle as them and so they don't want to support them. And then I, and then I hear the young women 
about this and it's like, well, is anyone actually doing the thing or are we just talking about how we're fearful of the other person doing the thing? Sort of like the conversation around female bosses. Like Americans think that female bosses are the worst, but if you actually pull Americans who have had a female boss, they really Mm -hmm. like them. So it's like, is this a media myth? And for me, learning from women intergenerationally has been the most moving part of this entire process for me. And so much of the stories they share and, and so much of what I've learned from them is so, so relevant today. Unfortunately, because maybe not that much has changed, but I love hearing war stories from the past. I just, that has truly been so instrumental to my writing process. And I think that understanding that we stand on the shoulder pads of the women who came before us (laughs) is very important. Um, But also knowing that, you know, I get so inspired by the younger generation too because they're so smart and they have this, yeah. like, they're not burnt out and they, <laughs> they have this resilience and, um, and they're like ready to fight and kick and um, and they. I do see that the younger women that I speak with, the women in college, they are very educated on this these issues but they also they all have a girl gang like they all have a posse they're all very into female friendships they're all into supporting each other much more so than i was at their age so i wonder if maybe some of that competitiveness won't happen for them when they reach the workforce and so we're going to do we're going to move to q a so a lot of your advice is centered around women working in like humanities and the business sector and i was wondering what your advice would be for young women up and coming in the tech industry and in scientific research positions? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually hope that the, vi- the advice can span across different genres and spaces. Like, I've never actually worked in business. A lot of the research out there looks at kind of C-suite, very business stuff, because they because those are the spaces that have money. Um, but a lot of these things are so micro and so subtle that they exist in every workplace. So whether you're an hourly employee in a wage job or working in tech or the research space, I think a lot of this stuff is still relevant. Like you're still going to deal with people interrupting you. You're still going to have to speak up. You may still feel like an imposter or a fraud. And in fact, those things are higher in science fields where women are less What's the word that I'm thinking of? They, represented. They are, yes, less represented. Um, so I hope that this advice really does span across different. I think there's things. also real value in in the book in just naming those. You know, naming things is really important. And I think recognizing when you're in the science and tech realm that it isn't you. You know, that's one right. of the things with MIT some years ago where they uh, went around and measured office spaces and the women there did it because they kept had this terrible attrition. Yeah. And they realized all these little ways, whether it was being asked to serve on panels or the size mm-hmm. of office spaces or whatever, that women were um, ha- had sm- small discrimination, subtle, subtle sexism. Well, and even like I was reading a study of the University of Washington that looked at the science department there and how it was located in a basement and it was very dreary and there wasn't a lot of sunlight. And that was one of the tiny things that was keeping women who were visiting that school who wanted to major in STEM not going there. So yeah, sometimes it is it, it can be these really tiny things, but talking about them for sure. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about fighting and surviving as women, but um, what's your vision for like the future of feminism? Is there gonna be a point where we're not gonna be fighting and surviving, but like conquering the workplace? Is it, is it, are we going to ever reach that point, and when do you think that will be? I mean, I hope so. Um, 
of course, I think the generations and generations have been talking about this, but I don't, I think that we are talking about this issue more than I have ever seen in my lifetime. Um, I hope that, I hope that we will reach a place where there are more women in power and there are an equal number of women in power. And when that happens, it will be better for women at all levels. Like power begets power. It, it, all of the research shows that more women in power makes it better for women at every level, and they actually do bring women up with them. Um, and I hope that it is an inclusive form of power, too, that isn't just limited to white women. Um, so, you know, like, fingers crossed. <laughs> I, ho I hope so. What are some techniques that work for the well-intentioned men to self-identify that they're displaying this behavior and... You know, I'm running into a lot of that with my community right now in the election and, and, you know, my homies, my boys who are displaying, you know, sexism in ways that's really upsetting me. Um, and they consider themselves feminists. Right. So um, at what point yeah. do we flip the script onto the men of, of confronting these these things? And it's not just about us being powerful and fighting. Right. It's about their ownership. Yeah, I think that's so that's important. True. And I think that that is very present today especially among young people, most, a lot of men do call themselves feminists and they really do want Thank you for joining us for this Week to Week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.